name is Lee, and I'm a member of Al-Anon. I teach fifth grade, and I didn't think I would need this microphone at all. Um, I'm here tonight to just share my experience, strength, and hope, and I hope I don't deviate from that. Um, I'm told that that's what I need to do. I've also got some notes, because although I'm supposed to speak from the heart, my heart gets really nervous in front of other adults. I also have some books with me tonight. Some of them you'll recognize. Al-Anon members, this is the best book that's ever been published. AA members, if you've ever been concerned about someone else's drinking, get it, read it. My two most favorite daily readers in the world. Um, somebody told me once that if you want to find an Al-Anon member that's get it, got it together, find someone who has an ODAT that's falling apart because they probably aren't. So I took that at that person's word. Um, and th- although this is not Al-Anon conference approved, this is a darn good little book. It's my little big book. <laughs> and I've gotten a lot of my program from this book. So I want to talk a little bit about that book tonight, too. Tonight, um, I'm going to do as the AA friends tell me, and that is to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today for me. Um, it's interesting that Kathy brought up that next Wednesday's date. Around the 1st of April, nine years ago, I first came to Al-Anon. Isn't it interesting? Right around April 1st. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of fits my story. Um, I also will probably say nothing original to you tonight. Um, that's because I have belief in a higher power, and a lot of my program comes directly from him. A lot of my program comes from that conference-approved literature and that other really good book, and I have a darn good sponsor. So... And a, a supportive home group. My, my Wednesday night Stepping Stones home group, home group is one that I started going to when I first came to Al-Anon, and it's still my main group. Um, I grew up in Cheyenne. I'm one of those rare Wyoming natives. <laughs> I know there aren't many of us. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a fairly normal family, or at least I thought so. Um, I had two sisters. My mom and dad were pretty... Um, steady kind of people. Neither one of them drank. They had other habits. (laughs) And I uh, really had a pretty normal growing up time. My first exposure to AA was, as I looked back on it in later years, was really kind of a profound one. Um, We had a speaker at my church one time. I was about eight or nine years old. But I remember this man introduced himself as an AA member, and he was there to speak to our congregation about what AA was. And so I left thinking that um, AA was little old black men in worn-out shoes. (laughs) He was really, um, that's all I remember of him, but I remember that he was an AA member. Um, My dad was a 50s kind of guy, you know. He believed in really traditional values. Um, My mom was a 70s kind of lady. She was breaking out on her own and wanting a career, and, and the two of them didn't match very well going into the 70s. And uh, they got divorced when I was about 12, 13, right in that time. And that really, really impacted my life. I'm 40, almost 41 years old, and it still remains the most significant event of my life, my parents getting divorced. Um, My disease as I see it today is that I work to keep you happy. And I realize that it started um, as being a really compliant child, I was the firstborn and just expected to do, you know, my dad said, and I did. Um, when my parents divorced, it was a heartbreaking experience for my dad. Um, my mom was on to other avenues and really wanting a career and life outside of her family, which I understand because I have that today, 
and it's taken for granted that I will have that today, but it was not taken for granted in those days. So I worked really hard to keep my dad happy. I knew he was heartbroken. I knew that it was a drastic change in his life, and I just didn't make any waves. Um, for a 13-year-old girl, having lived with a 13-year-old stepdaughter, I know that that is not normal, <laughs> not to make any waves. I worked very hard at it. I listened to him as he came in the door. Um, at the end of his long day, I would listen for his footsteps. I listened for how he closed the door uh, because I knew that his mood depended on, his mood would dictate how I spent my evening. Um, my sisters and I lived in different homes at that time. My sisters were with my mom, and I stayed with my dad simply because it was nearer my junior high and high school. I realized today that that had a real significant impact on, on me. Um, I lived at home till I was about 18, and when I graduated from high school, I went off for college. And my mom had gone back to college when I was about fourth grade, so I knew that that's what I needed to do to get my independence. And I also needed to be financially independent. As I said, my dad was that 50s kind of guy, and the man was in charge of the paycheck, you know, which included my allowance. And, and so I was just really ready to get some independence from him. Um, I want to tell you that I think my parents did the very best they could do, and they were good parents. I don't have anything bad to say about them. They were living their life on life's terms. Um, I went off to college and really worked hard for those grades because I didn't want to disappoint my dad. My mom I could afford to disappoint, but I couldn't afford to disappoint him because he, well, that's what was expected. And so I just did that, and I didn't think about what I really wanted. Um, <clears throat> when I went across that little stage with my diploma in my hand, I see him way back there in the audience with my 85-year-old grandmother, and I held that diploma up and thought, I'm not ever taking another dime from you. <laughs> because there were always strings attached. And I know he meant, I know he had my best interests at heart. Um, but that was the way I saw of having my independence, was not ever having to take any more money from him, knowing that I always had to account for every penny. A little bit of rebelliousness there, I think. Um, there were a lot of money issues between the two of us. Um, also during that period of my life, my junior high, high school years, I had a little sister coming up. She was five years younger than I was. And unknown to me until later in, in my, well, probably mid-20s, she started using pot and drinking at the, at the age of 12 in the sixth grade. I did not know that. She was living with my mom and had quite a bit of freedom, the freedom I did not have, the freedom to not have to please my dad. Um, I did not know that until I was later on down in my life. I'm happy to tell you today that she's four years clean and sober in Bozeman, Montana, which apparently has some darn good AA, and I'm really happy for that. She and I relate today on a, a plane that uh, I'm really grateful for. We have the language of the program, and, um, and that's pretty neat. Oh, I didn't tell you this before. I am married to a recovering alcoholic who has about two and a half months on me in this program. He got his start a little bit before I did, but I'll get to that here in another couple minutes. Um, my dating uh, in high school and college was really quite interesting as I look back on it. Uh, the guys that I dated, there were about four of them that, were, that I dated pretty seriously, one at a time, you know, this serial <laughs> monogamy thing. Um, when I went to my 10-year and then my later, my 20-year high school reunions, I looked at these guys and thought, you know what, those guys are alcoholics. 
I was dating them before they were. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> I was picking them out before they were. My husband was absolutely fascinated. At our 20-year high school reunion, my 20-year high school reunion, he'd had some years of sobriety, and he couldn't keep his eyes off of those guys. I kept nudging him, saying, honey, you need a meeting. <laughs> and I don't mean AA. <laughs> um, so that was, that's been interesting for me, to look back at those kids that I hung with in high school and thinking, hmm, I was doing the caretaking thing before it was fashionable. <laughs> Um, I met my husband after I got my first real job, and that was in Casper, Wyoming. I had no idea I would end up in Casper, Wyoming. I had a big romance in Denver. That was one of those alcoholics. Um, I was determined to stay in Colorado, where I graduated from college in Greeley. And, uh, well, it just didn't work out. God had other plans for me. And I kept getting these letters from this interview in Casper, and I kept throwing them away, thinking, I'm not going to Casper. (laughs) Why would I want to go to Casper? Um, At any rate, I landed my first job there, and um, 17 years later, (laughs) I'm still in Casper. (laughs) It's kind of growing on me. Um, During my first year of teaching there, I met my husband, and I probably no surprise to you that I met him in a bar. (laughs) And um, he was a good time boy. Everybody loved to have Kim around. Um, He was a lot of fun to be with, and, uh, and I thought so too. At the time that I met him, he was going through a really terrible divorce, and, you know, the caretaker in me came out really big time, and I just thought, oh, I can just make this man happy. To top it off, he had two adorable children. They had just turned five when I met him, twins, boy and a girl, and, um, you know, it was a tough time for them, and I thought, oh, I can just make them happy, and my life would be complete. Of course, I'd always wanted children. Um, my two younger sisters, of course, had not lived with my father and I for most of the time we were growing up, and, and I think I really felt that loss. Um, I had pets that I took care of digi- diligently. I think that mothering instinct was big in me. So when I saw Kim with these two little kids, I just thought, they just need me. They just need me to take care of them. And so we dated for about three and a half, four years, and, you know, I'm working really hard during those four years to get his life in shape, and uh, I just figured just what we needed to do was get married, you know, and then everything would just be all right. So I, um, Christmas came and went that last year before we got married, and he didn't ask, and I didn't say anything. On New Year's Day, I said, so, we going to make this permanent relationship or what? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the guy's probably scared to death of me. I don't know. So about four days later, he came over to my house, and he says, you get, so we getting married or what? So that was it, you know. Valentine's Day, we had a big bash, of course, you know where it was, in a bar. (laughs) Lovely little place in Casper called The Loft. And this place had a great big steep staircase. How many of you know it? I see hot. (laughs) It's called Sally's now. (laughs) Had a great big steep set of stairs to go up to this little party room upstairs. You know, the normal drinkers are downstairs. The big-time partiers were upstairs. You know, that's before they put the pool tables up there. So my bunch of my school friends and a bunch of my husband's school friends and all, all the drinking buddies were there, and people are buying him shots because he's getting married. Well, about 2 in the morning, I drag that boy out of there, and we leave, leave his car there. And you know what? I'm the, I'm the responsible one, so I'm driving him home. And it's a blizzard, kind of like it looked like this morning. And I slide through the first stoplight we come to, and who's sitting right over there but a highway patrolman, and he pulls us right over, and I looked over at him, and he said, he didn't say anything. I said to him, don't you say a word. Well, the guy's sitting there like this. He's not going to be able to say a word. (laughs) Oh, geez. It was crazy. You know, I look back at that, and I think, Leah, didn't you think something was wrong? 
Well, the thing that was wrong was that I was not taking good enough care of him. I got him home that night, and I was taking his pulse all night long because it was racing. And I just knew this guy's going to die on me. Here I get somebody to say he's going to marry me, and he's going to die on me. Needless to say, he lived through it, and we got married the next summer. Um, between the time that we got married and, and um, that engagement party, several of my friends said to me, you know, he kind of drinks a lot. I'd say, yeah, but it's going to be all right. Because, you know, once we're happy and things get settled and this custody thing with the kids gets settled, we're going to be all right. Well, I didn't know it was going to be five or six years later that we'd be all right. Um, I really wanted badly to make that family. I learned a lot of hard lessons in those first four years of our marriage. I tried really hard to make amends with the ex-wife and to make sure that the kids were going to be okay in this situation. And I didn't know. I didn't understand that that was not my place. Um, I think I probably ruined some things between my husband and his ex-wife. They have worked things out now, a lot of years later. <laughs> and I still have some amends that I need to make to her. It's some of those amends that are on my list that I have not gotten the opportunity to make. Someday I'll get them. Those kids are 21 years old today. Um, well, anyway... The time will come that I will get to make those amends to her, I hope. Um, a lot of the things that I, were, I was ignoring in that time were the mind-your-own-business, um, and I didn't follow God's instructions very well at that time. And I had a God in my life. I had a good God in my life. But I was making the list of instructions and handing them over, saying, okay, just do these things, and our life's going to be happy. Well, after about four years of marriage, we bought a little place in the country, and this place was a dump. My husband says today that he had a vision, and I was pretty sure he was just seeing things. <laughs> I mean, this place was a dump. It's 20 miles west of Casper and covered with junk. I mean, the guy who lived there before us was a collector. He had junk cars and broken windshields and old fence and old barns, and, well, anyway, it was a mess. We went ahead and bought that place, and, and that was the beginning of the end for us. Um, my husband at that point was coming home with a 12-pack under his arm, and most of it was gone. It was warm. You know, I don't know. He left it in the truck. He, he calls that pickup cold. You know, you AA members maybe know that term. He'd have most of that 12-pack gone by the time I, he got home from school. And I kept thinking, well, he's going to get tired of this sooner or later. I know I'm tired of this already. Um, we went to a lot of counselors. Actually, I drug him to several counselors, and I went to some because I knew I was crazy. Um, the crowning achievement in my counseling career, however, was dragging that poor man to a marriage counselor, a 45-year-old woman who'd never been married. Now, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. <laughs> I thought, this lady's got those pieces of paper on the wall, says she knows what she's doing. Well, she didn't have a clue, apparently, because nobody ever asked us anything about our drinking habits. You know, that never came up. Anyway, um, I went through one last counseling thing, kind of based on the Melody Beatty tapes and all of that stuff. By the time I was done with that and all the self-help books that I'd bought at the mall, I was convinced I was the crazy one, and he really had a handle on his life. He was doing all right. I was the one that needed to move out. So on a blizzardy day in January, I uh, moved out of our house. And it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. But once I made it, I just knew that's what I needed to do. And I think, in a way, I was turning my will and my life over. But I didn't know that. So I moved into this little apartment right behind the mental hospital in Casper. And that was a serious thought. <laughs> I thought, if I moved into that apartment, it's a big apartment complex, I figured if I moved into that apartment, if I really went off the deep end, I could crawl from there. And... Uh, 
I didn't know that two and a half months later that's where the first Al-Anon meeting would be that I'd go to. Um, after I left, about four days, five days after I left, Kim called me on uh, my answering machine, and I didn't tell him where I was living. I just gave him my new phone number. And he uh, announced to me on my answering machine about four consecutive messages that he had gone to AA and he knew what his problem was and wouldn't I just move home. And so I called a really good friend of ours and said, guess what? He says he's an alcoholic and he's going home. I mean, he wants me to come home. He says he's going to meetings, going to be all right. She said, <laughs> I don't think you better go home yet. <laughs> she said, this is a new deal for him and just give him some space. And that was the first time I'd heard from our friends that I ought to just leave that man alone. So um, it was about two months after that, maybe, that I was out at the house visiting with him. And I was really keeping my distance because we were, you know, both of us learning a lot during that period. I was still reading my self-help books, and, and he was just getting a handle on some meetings. And when I got in the car to leave that night, he tossed this little card on the dashboard of my car and said, maybe you ought to try some of these meetings. And I stared at that card all the way into town and, takes about 20, 25 minutes to drive into town. And the line that stuck out on me, out to me on that card was a little line that said, 8 p.m. Sunday night, Crestview Hospital, Al-Anon Beginners Meeting. And I probably should back up a step to tell you that he had, al- he had also asked me to meet with his sponsor. And, of course, you know what I thought. <laughs> I'll give that son of a gun about 10 minutes of my time because I was sure he was just going to tell me that everything is fine and I ought to just go home, straighten up. You know, I had that 50s image in my head of what a good wife should be. Um, I did meet with that man, and uh, I sat in that parking lot of that restaurant where I was supposed to meet him, and I watched every man walk into that restaurant for about half an hour because I was sure I would recognize an alcoholic, right? He's a little old shriveled-up black guy with worn-out shoes. (laughs) So I watched, and I watched, and I watched, and I thought, well, I better go in there. So I walked in the door, and this man leapt to his feet and came right over to me. I thought, now how does he know who I am? (laughs) Oh, brother. Probably had nothing to do with the crazed expression on my face. At any rate, I spent about two hours, two and a half hours maybe, with that man, and he never once told me I needed to go home. He just said, your husband's sick, man, and you're sick. I took great offense to that. I'd been reading all those self-help books, you know. Um, he said, uh, what you need to do is go to Al-Anon, and if you need somebody to talk to, call my wife. And then it was after that that Kim gave me that meeting card, and, and it was about a quarter to eight when I was driving into town that night. I thought, how can I not go to this meeting? This is a pretty direct message. So I did stumble into that first meeting at Crestview Hospital in Casper, Wyoming, and before the lady was done reading the 12 steps, I knew I was where I belonged. I knew that's where I needed to be. Um, After that night, I went to every single meeting on that card. And one night, I stumbled into a meeting that I thought was an Al-Anon meeting. There were a lot of people in the room. Of course, you know how I went into meetings those days? I had my head down, and I didn't look at anybody. I just looked at people's shoes, and I got to the next chair and sat down because I was worried about who was going to see me. I mean, I didn't, you know, this was a really weird deal to me. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what this deal was about. So I got into this one room of people and sat down way back there in the corner, and there were people standing in the doorway. This was such a big meeting. And after I'd been there a while, maybe 10, 15 minutes, I realized that I was in a closed AA meeting. <laughs> 
and there were only about three ladies in this whole room. Now, why I didn't look at the shoes on the way in, I don't know. (laughs) But I was sitting there thinking, I can't get out of this room. (laughs) And that was a gift from God for me, that I had to sit in that chair for that hour and a half and listen to these alcoholics. And as I lifted my head up and started looking around, most of them were very young. Um, And the thing that I learned that night, well, let me back up and tell you what I saw. I saw a very, very young man, 18, 19 maybe. He had one of those T-shirts on that you buy at Kmart that's supposed to be funny. And it said, tequila did this to me. And that boy was shaken so hard that he could not get a copy to his lips. And I thought, this boy didn't choose to do this. And I realized right then and there what they meant when they talked about alcoholism as a disease. That really, really impressed me. So I left that meeting that night with a whole different framework, and I really got to work on those meetings. And I really didn't share much, I don't think. I just listened a lot. At the end of the school year, I was due to go back out to Eugene, Oregon, to finish my last summer of graduate school. And I'd been to Eugene two previous summers to do graduate work. I want to tell you that I carried 18, some summers, 20 hours of graduate credit, and that was a vacation. (laughs) And I realized today what I'd been living with. You know, the pressure at home was incredible. Um, But to get to go out to Eugene and hole up in an apartment and just go to class, library apartment, class, library apartment, that was... That was a tremendous relief for me. So I headed off to uh, that last summer, and somebody said before I left, you know, you better check out Al-Anon in Eugene. They have meetings there. I thought, nah, I'm going to be too busy. But when I got to Eugene, I picked up the phone, and you know what? They had meetings. Well, not as many as we had in Casper, which impressed me. But they had meetings that would fit right around my class schedule. (laughs) I thought, hmm. (laughs) So I went ahead and went to those meetings, and I heard a lot in Eugene, Oregon that summer got my graduate degree, came on home. In fact, I invited my husband to come out to my graduation, and he very graciously came. We ended up being separated for about nine months. And I had kind of a temporary sponsor in Eugene who said, you know, maybe you ought to give your marriage a chance in sobriety. Did you ever try that? What? Of course I hadn't. The man was drinking when I married him, and I was already crazy. So we um, drove back from Eugene together, and I moved back out to the house. And I want to tell you that those first two years in the program were harder than that last year of drinking. And one of my very, my very earliest friend in Al-Anon told me that it probably would be. Well, I tell you what, I about decked her when she said that. I thought that last year was hard enough. But she was right. Those first two years were very, very tough. Um, we were both working our own programs. Um, boy, you know, this learning this thing in the beginning is very hard. I felt a lot like that quote in the big book, you know, that guy that comes up out of the cellar. Look, mine it grand, the wind stopped blowing. <laughs> well, neither one of us were very happy, and I know it was a hard time for the kids. They were 13, 14 in those years, and I know it was hard on all of us. Uh, my husband drug those kids to about six Alateen meetings, and they were too cool for that, you know. But they would go to AA meetings with him, and I know today that they hurt a lot. And I have a feeling that both of them are going to need this program. I'm saving a seat for my stepdaughter in my Al-Anon meetings. And Kim often comments that he's going to save that same seat next to him for his son. But it's going to have to be on their own time. They're not anywhere near ready. They're, they're young and have the world by the tail, you know. Remember that? <laughs> anyway, um, I know what got me through that time was literature, the meetings, and a darn good sponsor. Um, 
my my sponsor sponsored me through the first time through the steps through the big book and I will be eternally grateful for that um we weren't able yet to work together as a couple in the program, but that has come, and it's a really wonderful experience. I do want to tell you one little humorous thing that happened to me. Um, one afternoon, I, my car got backed into in a parking lot, and I was sitting in it at the time. <laughs> and this young man leaped out of his pickup, and he said, Oh, my God, I couldn't have done that. And he was drunk. And I thought, You son of a bitch. <laughs> Backing into my car. It didn't have a scratch on it, and I was very proud of that. Put 90,000 miles on it myself. Um, no ego problem here, right? <laughs> anyway, I was really resentful at this kid, and he gave, me, he gave me a phone number that was right, but everything else was wrong, so I couldn't get a hold of him. And I had a big resentment about this. Took this to my sponsor, and she said, you know, I think you need to read page 552 in the big book. It's that little page about resentments. You know, if you have resentment against somebody, pray for him for two weeks. So I did that, and guess what happened to me on the 14th day? I backed into somebody else's car. (laughs) (laughs) That did not impress me very much. I called her and I said, what's the deal? (laughs) Is this going to happen to me every time I do that page 552 thing? Well, I want to tell you what it's a little bit more about what it's like today. I have a tremendous sponsor. She is wonderful. In fact, I was sitting in, it was probably during my second year of meetings, listening in a meeting and my arms were tightly crossed and I was swinging that old foot, you know, the position. You've probably been there. And this lady next to me leaned over and she says, do you have a sponsor? And I whispered back, no, thinking, oh, she's going to ask me, you know. (laughs) I didn't know that's how it worked, (laughs) not how it worked. And um, she said back to me, get one. And she got up and left the meeting. (laughs) It wasn't long after that that I did ask somebody to sponsor me. And um, I will will always be grateful to her. She is still my sponsor today and a very steady lady. I hesitated at first asking her because although she really shared what I felt in meetings and I liked what she had to say about her own recovery occasionally I'd see her have a really bad day and I thought oh god I can't ask somebody that's still having bad days little did I know that that's just going to be part of the deal anyway um, she started me right off at step one in this wonderful book of recovery remember that step one I mean do you remember when being clueless was a bad thing do you remember that today it's a good thing and I am so grateful to have that in my life. I really like this part of the How It Works chapter, and I know all of you AA members know this by heart, that part that says you could not manage your own lives and that probably no human power could and that God could and would if he were sought. That really impressed me. That really stuck with me. My sponsor went on to tell me that all my troubles were of my own making. Well, I was pretty pissed about that. I wanted to blame big time. And she led me through those first three steps saying, you can't, he can, and I think you better let him. Because I was making a mess of things. And this is after sobriety. I was pushing hard on my husband to do his program the way I thought he ought to. And she just needed to remind me a bunch of times to get out of his face. Um, Step two really came for me when I acknowledged a higher power, and that wasn't me. Remember I told you I had a God in my life, but I made instruction lists for him. And he was not following them very closely. (laughs) So I really needed to turn those things over in my life. And you know what? It wasn't for God. 
It was for me. I needed to understand that these things were not mine to do and that I needed to do what was in front of me. Um, I, today I know that God knows what's best for me. I just don't know. And that, that little phrase that says faith takes practice, <laughs> no kidding. I'm still practicing today. And if I work things right, I will be for quite a while yet. My sponsor also helped me understand that my step four meant that I had defects and I had assets, and they were on the same continuum. Defect on this end, asset on this end, and I just needed to get some balance between those two. It's that spiritual principle of replacing the bad habits with the same end on on the other end of a good habit. Um, Today I still work with that principle, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I love that part of the big book that says we are in the world to play the role that he assigns us. He enables me to match calamity on this end with serenity on that end to the point that I am willing to turn things over to him. And when I'm not willing to move from calamity to serenity, it's because I'm still holding on to something. Um, I I learned through that process that I needed to earnestly pray for the right ideal and for the strength to do the right thing because it was there all along. I just needed to let go of my obsessions long enough to listen to that message coming from my higher power. I'm going to flip ahead here to page 75 about the fifth step. It says, when we decide who is to hear our story, we waste no time. Well, let me tell you, I wasted a bunch of time. (laughs) She'd say, you got that thing written yet? (laughs) Well, I'm working on it. And she finally just said, sit down. You talk. All right. (laughs) And that's what happened. And I do that with sponsorees today, and it's pretty effective. Now, I know those AA folks don't waste any time. They get that new guy in there, and they say, okay, one, two, three, four, sit down. We're going to do this. And I can see why that's necessary for AAs, and I think it probably is for Al-Anons. We just play around it a lot more. We beat around the bush. Oh, it's really not that bad, you know. Anyway, um, as I work through that first fourth step, what happened to me is on this page. It says, our fears will fall from us, and we begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. And that really happened for me in big ways. Um, We thank God from the bottom of our better. That really did happen for me in a lot of little ways. And, you know, if you haven't read that part in the big book about the spiritual experience, I mean the educational variety, (laughs) you probably better read that. That's a wonderful piece, wonderful part of the big book, and that has been my experience. I didn't get any burning bushes or lightning bolts. I got those little learning experiences, and thank God I still get them today. Um, Step six and seven says to me that I need to be willing and ready to change. Um... And for me, that was a big order because I was into making lists and I wanted God to follow my instructions. And once my sponsor got that idea through to me, I knew that I just needed to ask God for his help in removing those defects and then hold on. (laughs) And it's just like my sponsor said it would be. Once my God decided what was to go, then my God, he decided what was to go. (laughs) And I didn't have any way of predicting that or knowing what was going to happen, knowing the lessons that he was going to put in front of me to let go of some of those fears. Um, One of my biggest problems has been jealousy. And jealousy of, and I know this goes way back to my childhood, my parents were very hardworking people and didn't have a lot of time for affection and and we did lots of things together. The, the affection part of it just wasn't there, I realize, today. They were busy people, and they lived in a different time. 
they were raised differently. Um, and there was a lot of jealousy between my sisters and I. And I felt some jealousy for my stepkids, for the attention that they commanded over their dad. So I had a lot of work to do on that jealousy issue. I had some jealousy over the ex-wife. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> he wasn't living with her. I don't know what my problem was. Anyway, that's been a big lesson for me, and I still deal with that one today. Um, steps eight and nine. Those are the amends steps. Um, as I told you, I have some amends that I still haven't made. The time hasn't been right, and I'm not sure that that person is ready to hear them. Um, willingness is my key for those two things. Um, making amends ahead of time or at all <laughs> maybe is the wrong thing to do, and I can ruin, I can ruin some relationships if I try to push those issues. Um, the steps eight and nine, you know, it's... It would be a mistake to rush into those things, and so one of the things that my sponsor did was me, with me to, was to refocus on what my responsibilities really were. And there's a little reading from the uh, Courage to Change. I think it's March 25th. There's a little list in there, and one of my sponsorees laminated this little list for me. She knew I needed it. It says, I believe I am responsible for the following. To be loyal to my values. To please myself first. What a concept. <laughs> to keep an open mind, to detach with love, to rid myself of anger and resentment, to express my ideas and feelings instead of stuffing them, to attend Al-Anon meetings and keep in touch with friends in the fellowship, to be realistic in my expectations. I don't know about you, but expectations trip me up every time. To make healthy choices and to be grateful for my blessings. If I'm really doing this list, guess what? I have no time for worrying about you. And remember I told you my disease is trying to keep you happy, and I still get caught up in that today if I'm not doing the things on this list. <coughs> steps 10 and 11 are my keeping healthy steps. My sponsor, almost every time I talk to her, she says, remember what it says in the 10th step, and she can practically recite that sucker. Now I know she has not just said it to me, but that's what it feels like. Even if I get her husband on the phone, he's talking the 10th step to me. And I appreciate that today. On page 84, it talks about those steps, 10 and 11. I need to keep things simple because I can complicate things so quickly that they become monstrous. Remember, I was dragging my husband off to all those counselors thinking that they had the answer. I didn't know I had the answer right here and that God had answers for me. So I need some simple reminders. I need a reminder that step 10 is just taking that personal inventory every day and setting right any mistake as I make it, quickly. On the next page, it talks about the daily reprieve. And AA members, that's not just for you. That's for us, too. I need a daily reprieve from the insanity that got me here in the first place. Um, and it goes on to tell me that that's contingent on my spiritual fitness. And that means prayer and meditation every day, whether I have time or not. My sponsor reminds me that this is the proper use of God's will, that I stay in today, that I solve problems as they come up if, I, if they're within my power to do that, and that I bring God into his vision for me of my, in my daily activities. And believe me, if you've ever walked into a fifth grade classroom, God had better be there with you. <laughs> You're dead in the water if he's not. Um, I really appreciate the 11th um, the step where it talks about if agitated, we pause and we ask for the right thought, the right ideal. 
couple of weeks ago, I had a really, really difficult student that I was dealing with. There were some other kids right around, and this kid was throwing this major deal. And I just had to take a deep breath. And he said, what are you doing, counting to ten? And I said, no, I'm asking God for help. (laughs) And he just looked at me like, man, she has gone. (laughs) It gave me the time and the space I just needed to get get my thoughts together before I dealt with him. Step 12, you know, that's why you're all here tonight. Because you've come to make sure that AA in Wyoming or Al-Anon in Wyoming stays strong. Um, I work with the same sponsor I've worked with from the beginning. In that time that I really have worked this program, I've been lucky enough to get some sponsorees to ask me to work with them. What a privilege. I learn more from my sponsorees than I know they learn from me. And what a blessing. Um, I've had some offices in my groups, and I appreciate that chance to serve them. And I can tell you now that I am learning, learning, learning every step of the way and getting the chance to practice those principles in all my affairs. And frankly, if I can't practice those principles in all my affairs, then I better rethink my affairs. (laughs) I know that's true for me today. Today I have a lot of gratitude for the gifts in my life. About four years after sobriety in our household and after some serenity on my part, we were finally able to put a big addition on our house. Now, most of the time we lived out in that dump, we spent cleaning up. And it, was, it seems to me today that we needed to get it cleaned up and we needed to get our own lives in order, you know, get your house in order kind of thing before God would give us the money to build on to that little dumpy farmhouse. And what we did was to triple the size of our house. And I want you to know that the main carpenter on that job was a member of AA. And the man who installed our pellet stove and built the little brick stand that it went on was an AA member. The man who laid the concrete was an AA member. The guy who did the finished carpentry was an AA member. And it is so gratifying today to have those people as friends. I mean, how many carpenters do you have that's, that, that would listen to you, first of all, about saying, you know, I want this little light thing, and I want it to look like this, and can you use this wood, and can you make it this long? And he'd say to me, let me pray about it. <laughs> that was a pretty neat deal. If you need a good carpenter in Casper, let me know. <laughs> um, that addition really is um, such a gift to us. It's not only a product of the serenity and sobriety we have in our home, but of the love that my husband and I have been able to share with each other and the trust. I I maybe mentioned before that money's a big issue with me. And from the very beginning of time that I dated him, I always insisted on paying my own way. You know, some of you gals will understand that. In dating, I had some really raw experiences about, well, I paid for dinner, (laughs) and I was supposed to do something later. Well, I wasn't going to go for that. And I made it really clear with my husband from the very beginning that we were going to share and share alike. So when the, the addition issue came up and we needed to go sign the loan papers, that was really the first time that we'd signed anything together other than our marriage license. Um, I insisted on keeping all of other, our other finances separate. So it was a big trust thing for us, and I'm really grateful for that today. Um, today my stepkids are 21 years old. Neither one of them live in our home. Um, they both are living life on... Uh, a 21-year-old's life's terms. Um, Today I'm able to bring a little bit more serenity into my job, and sometimes that means walking out of rooms, like the teacher's lounge, where there's lots of gossip that goes on. 
Sometimes it means taking time out with a kid and saying, you know, I can't talk to you about this right now. Give me some time and I'll get back, back with you. Um, I just have had some incredible experiences along those lines. Um, sometimes I've called my sponsor in the middle of the day and asked her to help me think through what the right action should be, the right ideal in my job. Today I know that the steps help keep me in balance personally. Today I know that the traditions help me keep my relationships healthier. And I know that I'm better able to cope with difficulties. <clears throat> Last November I dealt with a difficulty that I never dreamed I'd be dealing with this early. Um, I got a phone call about 2 o'clock in the afternoon uh, from Cheyenne saying that my father was very ill. He had had heart surgery, but he was doing really well, and he had gone back to work. And his, um, his lady friend of 25 years called me and said, you better get down here right away. And so I got down there and got to visit with him for a couple of hours before he was too tired to talk, and I'll always be really grateful for that time. About 2 o'clock the next afternoon, he was gone. I, this man was 69 years old. He never drank, he never smoked. But I know the stress in his life and the stress he put himself under trying to be the perfect guy did him in. <laughs> I don't want to live my life that way. I don't want to live with that stress. When I buried him, I just asked God to give me the right direction because I knew that, um, first of all, I knew it was going to be very hard to live life without him. And remember, I told him I wanted to be independent. And he was gracious enough to give me that space and let me be my own adult in the next year or so and for the past whatever months it's been since November I've been working as the executor of his estate remember I told you I had money issues well <laughs> this man bless his heart left us quite a legacy my sisters and I and I'm having a really hard time with that prosperity um, first of all feeling that I don't deserve it and secondly, wishing that he had spent it on himself. Um, it's an issue I didn't think I'd have to deal with until I was older. My grandmother lived to 98. <laughs> I figured I'd have him till he was 98. Anyway, it's th that's just a really quick example of how the steps are working in my life today. And I know that I'm going to get to resolve that money equals love issue. <clears throat> In closing, I'd just like to tell you that there's a quote by Henry David Thoreau in our Courage to Change book, this little book. And it says, advance confidently in the direction of your dreams. And I wish the same for you, and I, and I hope to continue that myself. Um, I love that part of the big book that says, abandon yourself to him, admit your faults to him, clear away the wreckage of your past, and we'll probably see each other trudging that happy road of destiny. Thanks for letting me talk to you tonight.